Welcome back to Missing. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I'm doing very well today, Tim. I can't complain. I hope everyone out there is doing great. But the pressing question on the tip of my tongue at the forefront of my brain is how are you today? <laughs> I am doing great today, Lance. Thanks a lot for asking. I really appreciate Anytime. it. Anytime. And I hope all, all our listeners are doing well, too. Um, this episode is a doozy it, in, in a lot of good ways. It's, um, it's an emotional roller coaster. There are twists and turns in this very interview that, you know, some of them we knew were coming. Some of them we, we asked specifically for, for certain answers, but some of them we didn't. Just a wild conversation with a lot of sort of elements in it. And there are three people that are in this interview with us, Lance. And it's really the convergence of two mysteries coming together. Well said, yeah. A convergence of two mysteries coming together uh, is something that we look for, I think, with every disappearance that we talk about. Because there's always the, why was the person in the spot? before they went missing. So there's the missing and then there's the what happened prior to that. So uh, this goes deeper though than like what happened prior. It's like the lead up to all of this. We're joined by uh, Susan, Mel, and Jason. And like you said, there's a lot of contributors to this. And I guess we get a little nervous sometimes when, especially we're on a Zoom and you're at the uh, mercy or the you're at the feet of the technological overlords. And with three people on a Zoom, you and I, five five things that might go wrong right there, just technically, uh, let alone right. people talking over each other or, um, you know, maybe somebody's uh, Zoom freezing or something, but nothing went wrong. And everybody had their place. Everybody spoke uh, in, a, in a relevant way. No one was repeating somebody else. It was everyone brought what they needed to bring to the table about this uh, Finley Creek Jane Doe and... The story unfolded in such a way where I felt like at some points I was listening to a, and this is no insult to anything, no disrespect to the Finley Creek Jane Doe or any of our three guests. I felt like I was listening to a radio drama at some points. Yeah, I mean, it it really plays out um, in an interesting way. So the mysteries are missing person Patricia Lee Otto, who went missing from Lewiston, Idaho in September of 1976. And we are joined by Patricia's daughter, Suzanne. Suzanne Timms on the call. And she was looking into her mom's case while these other people, Mel Jeterberg and Jason Futch, had been working on this Jane Doe, this Finley Creek Jane Doe case. And when you say working on, you mean these are unattached people. These are civilians who have no relation to Patricia Lee Otto to the Finley Creek Jane Doe, or to Suzanne. So it's it's people that are listening right now, people who are looking into certain disappearances, connecting with family members, and making sure that they're doing it in the best way, most productive way possible. And again, they come together in such a cool, cohesive way, and they, they make progress. They do, and Finley Creek Jane Doe was found in Elgin, Oregon on August 27th, 1978. So this is very much a cold case, really two cold cases with some revelations that have unfolded in the past couple of years. And so our three guests believe that Patricia may indeed be the 
Finley Creek Jane Doe. And so that, you know, that's really like sort of the outcome that were one of the outcomes that we hope happen on every missing persons case that we cover. Um, and on some of them, like we know they're, they're probably out there as does um, that are unidentified, you know, and this is, so this is one that, that kind of comes together from two different angles and just re really made me happy to have this conversation and uh, get to spread the word about this. And if anyone out there has any further information about the Finley Creek Jane Doe, they are instructed to contact the investigating agencies. The first one being the Oregon State Medical Examiner's Office, Dr. Veronica Vance at 971-673-8300. Or you can contact the Oregon State Police at 1-800-442-2068. And they're looking to do more testing and searches, so you can donate to them. There are some links in the show notes. And check out Finley Creek Jane Doe on Facebook, and check out Patty's Voice on Facebook. And if you have any information on Patricia Lee Otto's disappearance, please contact the Lewiston Police Department at 208 Seven four six zero one seven one. We're going to play a quick commercial break and then we'll resume with Suzanne, Mel, and Jason. Thanks a lot for listening, everybody. Please follow us on social media at Missing CSM. And if you like this episode, feel free to swing over to the Apple review section, pop a five star in there, and maybe a couple of kind words. Goes a long way. Welcome to the podcast, Suzanne, Mel, and Jason. How are you today? Wonderful. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Well, glad to have you and really, uh, really glad that you're coming on to talk about this uh, case that you've been working on for a while and all the information that you have on it. This case is really wild. I I'd like to go through and um, if, if everyone can kind of introduce themselves and, and tell us uh what part of this case you're working on. Um, if we can start with Suzanne. So I'm Suzanne Timms and I'm the daughter of Patricia Otto. So I have been technically working on this case since I was three years old, obviously, but became mostly involved in June of 2021 when I discovered the forensic image of Finley Creek Jane Doe. And I can go from there. My name is uh, Melinda Jetterberg. I go by Mel and I'm the admin for the Finley Creek Jane Doe unidentified person Facebook page and Suzanne made contact with me in June like she said based on some forensic art that was posted on that page that she saw and that came to us because of a contact that Jason had and I'm Jason Futch I'm an investigative journalist for JPF Productions and am the host of From the Vault a true crime podcast and the upcoming Suwannee Valley Unsolved set for a summertime release this year. And I was able to connect with Mel because uh, I had done some, uh, some pretty uh, decent research on the Finley Creek case. Uh, it was after someone from Web Sleuths had suggested the case to me. And so I put all the information that I had, uh, that I had received and I posted it on Crime Watchers and that is where Mel's family uh, discovered a lot of my research, and that's pretty much how we became connected. Okay, and uh, Suzanne, I'm, I'm so sorry for your loss. Can you tell us a little bit about your mom? 
I wish I could. Um, honestly, I'm learning who my mother was through this investigation because I was so young when she disappeared and my sister and I were told that she abandoned us. So I kind of grew up thinking that my mom was this terrible person who just left her children one night. And, um, through this investigation, I've been able to connect with people who knew her and, you know, knew her personally and went to school with her. And because I've been openly um, sharing my theory on what happened, my family has been able to share who my mom was and what kind of person she was. And it's interesting that biology plays such a huge piece in who you are because, or who you become, because I'm discovering that I'm a lot like my mom. Um, She's very, uh, very dedicated mother and loved her children more than anything. And that's really hard for me to, to hear because of what I grew up believing, right? I have children of my own and they're my life. So it's been interesting to learn her creative side and how passionate she was about being a mom and wanting to make her house the perfect home and um, decorating and things like that and the parties and those are just things that I think I obviously picked up on or they were biologically given to me because and my family is just so important to me. And I'm really looking forward to being able to have closure on this case eventually. That's really wonderful to hear that you were able to learn about your mother through all of these uh, elements, through these avenues, um, the investigation, other family members. Um, and I And I hate to ask the question, but I know people are probably thinking it. Who was it that told you your mom just ran off and abandoned you? Well, obviously, my father was there day one telling us that our mother had up and left for another man. And then uh, when my father was arrested two months later, we were in custody or not custody, but we were in the care of family members. So her own family, Patty's family, was not able to talk about it because my father had instructed them if they mentioned her name or said anything about her they would no longer see us. So she just vanished from the conversations from that side of the family. When we went to go live with my father's family, they were 100% supportive of my father's statement that she'd left. So we were told our whole life by both sides, really, that Patty had left and that there was a chance she would come back. And I think that's just the nice thing to say to children. And they never really found a good time to come forward with the truth. That's really unfortunate. And this is something that happened in 1976, correct? Correct. And can you take us back to um, what you know of that day? So that night, my mom picked us up from our grandparents' house and brought us home at about 11 p.m. to our house in Lewiston, Idaho. And she put us downstairs to go to bed, which was unusual because our bedroom was upstairs. Um, my parents got into a a verbal altercation and me being the curious little three-year-old that had a million questions, I snuck upstairs to go find out what was happening. And I witnessed him hit her first and then she hit him back and he came back and put his hands around her neck, pushed her up against the wall and drug her out of my sight. Um, I didn't know what was happening or didn't really understand what was happening, but I knew I was very scared and I could tell that obviously this is not okay. And I ran back down to my sister and explained to her that I was scared and didn't know what was happening. Um, the next morning, my father got us up in a big rush to get out of the house. And he had told us at that time that, that our mom had left, that she didn't want to be a mother anymore. So I kind of thought we were going to go look for her, but instead he took us to a girlfriend's house because she was moving out of town. And so we went 
to go help his girlfriend finish moving. And then later that afternoon, he took us to um, Patty's sister's house. And that's where we stayed for several months while I assumed he was looking for our mother, but it certainly doesn't appear he ever did that. And what was happened when he was arrested? So two months after she disappeared, my dad was in a bar because he was an alcoholic. He was there often. He was complaining about the Lewiston Police Department investigation, and he wanted them off his back. And he said he wanted to get rid of the captain. The bartender, who had known my father for years, was really under the impression that dad had killed our mom, and he felt that he was serious about this, so he wanted to take his threat seriously. He contacted the Lewiston Police Department and let him know that Ralph was making these accusations of wanting to get rid of Captain Ayler and what what is he supposed to do? So Lewiston police told him, play along with it. Just, you know, play along with it and we'll send someone to be the hitman. So literally the next day they set this up to where my dad's meeting this out of town hitman from California and my dad pays the man and at the same time makes arrangements to have two other hits made. And he's arrested on October 27th two months after my mother disappeared, and it was on my sister's fifth birthday. Wow. Um, okay, and then... I... Sometimes it takes a little bit to process these no, things. No matter, I, I no matter how often I promise I'm not making this stuff up. No, no, no. I mean, it, it's, it takes a little bit for us to take it in and really, like, let it mature in our heads a little bit. Like... All the elements of this, like all those, all those aspects that you just mentioned, like, like how in my first question, like how in nineteen the the mid nineteen seventies, does someone know how to access a, a a hitman like that? What kind of? And I, yeah, I'm not trying to. I know it's it sounds like it's funny, but Seriously. how does that happen? How, yeah. What circles do you run in? I think that the bartender had kind of alluded some shady business, you know, over the years with my father and that he was known in town for being kind of shady. So my dad was thinking he's got connections. He, he knows people. And they had discussed this before because apparently my dad had shared that before that if you ever needed to get rid of someone, he knew someone who could help him. So I think this bartender had kind of alluded before that, like, you know, I have connections. I'm, I'm kind of a big deal. And in reality, he just runs to the police and is like, oh God, I'm scared. Now he's serious. <laughs> you know, he, he really wants to kill someone. And I don't know what to do now because he was just bullshitting with him the whole time. And now this is serious. Mm-hmm. And also too, you have to remember too, this was the seventies during the height of the motorcycle gangs and stuff like that. So accessing a hitman was probably as easy as just walking up to a motorcycle club saying, hey, I need someone off. So my father does four years at the Idaho State Maximum uh, Prison in in Idaho there, and um, he takes this case to the Supreme Court and he fights it because he's got money and he's got a lawyer and he's going to fight it. He's going to turn around and sue the Lewiston Police Department for entrapping him. And he has this case that he's going to sue the police department and he gets this case overturned. And by golly, he's right back out in Lewiston, Idaho as a free man four years later. So my sister and I go back into this house with my father, who I know in my mind, I saw him strangle her and I'm going to go back and go live with him. I ended up in the hospital, actually had a, a 
a child nervous breakdown. Apparently I broke out in hives all over my whole body. And they, at the emergency room said, this is a complete nervous reaction. And obviously it's very stressful to go back home after my father's been in prison for four years, but we never really talked about what, what he was in there for. I had no clue. I didn't know what he was in prison for. I, we were just under the assumption that he made some bad choice, whatever, but we had no clue. All we knew was we were going back home. And there was no alternative um, at that time? I wasn't given an alternative. I just know he showed up at the house smelling like alcohol, picking us up and bringing us home. So I, it's not like we were given the choice to say, do you want to go home with him? I mean, he's my legal father. I, no, I didn't have a choice. My gosh. Um, I guess, how did that go? How did those, how did the time after that go? Well, I am not going to lie. That was an amazing year. I was turned free and I had no rules, no expectations. My sister and I ran free that entire year. Um, it was fantastic for us. We thought we were living the greatest life ever. You know, my dad was gone a lot and he had a lot of lady friends that he visited with. So he would be gone sometimes for days, nights. Apparently there was times that we called his friends asking for food because we didn't have food. Um, I experienced my first alcohol consumption at the age of eight. You know, we were just, we were running wild that year, um, but it didn't last very long. I think my father realized he wasn't mentally capable of caring for my sister and I because he packed up our stuff about a year after we'd moved in and told us that we were going back with his sister. So just out of the blue, he brought us back out to the farm in cul-de-sac and told us he wasn't, wasn't capable. And then that following year, he died in police custody on unrelated charges. So by 10, my sister and I had lost both parents. That's, that's incredible. Um, what were the uh, circumstances of his death? Well, we were told that he had a heart attack while he was being booked on a theft charge, but he was 48 years old. And I just never really believed that. Like, how does a 48 year old just die of a heart attack? So we didn't really know what happened until we got the death certificate and the autopsy report. When we were old enough, we asked for the police reports and um, it's not a heart attack. He had a cardiac arrest under some suspicious circumstances, and he's missing patches of skin all over his body. His foot is degloved, and they couldn't explain the injuries on his body. So who knows? His, his foot is degloved? Correct. So Is that what I'm thinking it is? Correct. Why would that be? You tell me. Why, when I've you're in police custody, does your foot just fall off? True. And and the huh? thing, too, is like when I hear that, you know, usually a degloving involves like some, like submerging in water. But also, they're, I, based on this, I'm thinking they did something else because uh, I saw the pictures, too. It didn't look natural, in my opinion. Yeah. It's never been determined what happened. The coroner couldn't explain the injuries there's, um, I believe, 11 patches of skin missing all over his body, and his his foot is inside of his cowboy boot. Um, and what happened is a cardiac arrest, which is different. People misunderstand that a heart attack is the same as a cardiac arrest. It's not. Heart attack is when you have some kind of cardiac disease that causes a blockage, causes the heart to stop. Cardiac arrest is when the heart just stops for no known um, pathophysiology something external is causing it or 
yeah, what caused it? So when my sister and I got that case file, we kind of went two different directions. She found out that my father didn't die of a heart attack and she wanted to pursue that. I read about five pages of the missing persons report and I'm like, now it is so obvious that dad is responsible for this. She didn't want to hear that. She wanted to prove that my father was innocent. That was really hard. It was really hard for us to have two different opinions about what had happened. Yeah. And how is your relationship now with your sister? Well, I wish I could tell you that. <laughs> in 2006, my sister was on a boat with her husband and two children, and they were overcome by carbon monoxide poisoning, and they died in the same little town that my father died in. In 1983, our dad died in Orfino, Idaho. And in 2006, I lost the rest of my family in Orfino, Idaho. I uh, know she was up until the last minute wanting to find answers. And um, I think she knows now what happened and that she's trying to help us from the other side because I can't tell you how many times she's led us in this case. And it's weird, but she wants me to know the truth now. My gosh, well, I'm so sorry. Yeah. I'm, I mean, there's these stories that we hear when we interview people and it just feels like one thing and another thing and another thing. And it, it really makes one look at their own life and just understand like how, I guess, valuable and precious everything really is. Um, and it puts me in a different place when, when we speak to people like you, because you're still going and you're still fighting for your mom and you're still fighting for the memory of your sister. And, you know, we applaud that. It, it takes a lot of strength to do that. And you have, you have two wonderful uh, cohorts who seemingly will, will go, uh, you know, above and beyond for you as well. Absolutely. We absolutely will. And Suzanne is one of those people I've known her for almost a year now, which isn't that long, but she is, <laughs> she's the one who, if stuff gets heavy, when we're talking, she'll then make a comment about her life being the shit show. And we just all laugh. <laughs> and then we, we move on to the next thing because it's true. If you don't laugh, you're going to cry. And she is absolutely one of the strongest people that I've ever met. And when I was imagining meeting a family member of Finley Creek Jane Doe, I assumed it was going to be mom, right? It was going to be the mother or whoever it might be. Um, I never in my wildest dreams imagined it would be someone who this was just kind of one of the first things that happened. And there's been all this other stuff she's had to deal with after that. So I, I am just... I was dedicated to this case before and then upon meeting Suzanne just became completely 100% invested. We're going to figure this out no matter what, because she deserves that. Thank you, Mel. Same. I, I, I echo that sentiment there. And upon meeting Suzanne, gosh, so I think we met probably about a couple months after you met Mel and uh, just to hear her story, it's, I mean, I don't even know if fascinating is the right word, in my opinion, because it's like there's just so many storylines that just merge. And when everyone actually gets the the comprehension behind it, 
you can't help but think, oh my goodness, like the Finley Creek Jane Doe has to be Patricia Otto. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. Okay, so tell us about the Finley Creek Jane Doe um, finding. When, when did this happen? And um, yeah, tell us a little bit more information about that. While my dad was in prison for the attempted murder, um, Tom Celine is the primary detective on the case. He came to meet with my father in September of 1978 to tell him that they had found a body um, that they really believed was my mother. And my dad immediately says, Pendleton, yeah, yeah, no, it's not her. During that conversation, my dad tells the, the detective that, of course, he's innocent. He has nothing to do with this. But he does mention that he no longer wants to go to the pill line and have to wait in line for his psych meds because it's a waste of his time. And he said, besides, everybody knows he's in prison for killing his wife. And then he backtracks and tries to cover that up. He literally tells you, everybody knows I'm here for killing my wife. He's there for attempting to kill the police captain, not for killing his wife, but he knows that's why he's there. Everybody knows that's why he's there. And then as far as the case in 1978, I'll hand that over to Mel. In 1978, there were some bones found in kind of out in the countryside. It's an area that is wooded, but it's very big for logging has been for decades it's a big camping hunting area. And there is also a really maintained forest service road out there that people have built houses on. So while it is wooded and secluded, it's not in the middle of nowhere. It's, it's pretty highly trafficked out there. And so this hunting party, in the police report, it says it was two, two men, two adult men who found this skull and at that time those investigations because of where it was out in the woods it was the Oregon State Police who was assigned to take over the investigation. Keep in mind not a lot of murders at that time happened here right so the investigative force wasn't really big and you know they did what they could at the time but she was found on a deer trail. These hunters had come across a skull that had clearly recently been unearthed. And she was wearing some red pants. We all kind of guessed they're polyester just because it was the 70s, but that wasn't actually a descriptor that was used. They were size 15, 16 juniors. They showed evidence of length alteration. There was some other fabric in there that looked like it could be a halter top or maybe kind of a heavy duty bra, some white fabric, some other fabric in there that had red hearts on it. And then there was a length of coaxial cable that was tied in a knot. There were no, there was no jewelry. There was no ID obviously, and nothing that appeared to be say something like a coat or a jacket, but there were these boots on the feet that were old and weathered. They were kind of worn on one side, like as if somebody had been walking funny, no socks and that's it. That's all that was in there. Oh, in addition to which there were some fetal bones. They estimated that this woman was anywhere between a few months to just about to give birth 
pregnant. Okay. And um, Mel, are Jane Doe's uh, something you find interesting? Is this um, how you got involved in this? It was a combination of things. I have been one of those little children who wandered over to the true crime section in the library and kind of set up camp there at 11 or 12 years old. So started there. I actually went to college. I got a degree in criminal justice and another in criminology. And then my graduate program was in information science, which is essentially becoming a librarian. But that was more for the research and the tools that I could use for this. And then also mad consumer of true crime content like a lot of people you meet, I'm sure. So actually the very first podcast I listened to was Missing Maura Murray. That was the first one I ever listened to. Um, checks in I, the mail. Thank you very much. Thank you, as we agreed. <laughs> and no, I'm just kidding. I had been hearing about podcasts and I'm like, what the heck? I kept hearing about them, but never had gone and listened to one. And then when I did, it was, um, it had to do with missing persons cases because those are completely fascinating to me. Um, then Michelle McNamara's book came out. So I'll be gone in the dark came out and she was talking about some tactics that she used as a citizen to get information and try to solve this case she was working on. And I was like, that's so interesting. I wonder if I could do that. And so just one Friday night after, you know, listening to podcasts, reading books, I kept hearing about the Doe Network, but I'd never gone and checked it out. So I did that. And I, of course, put in Union County, Oregon, because that's where I'm from, and not expecting to find anything at all. And there was this one. And so I started reading about it. There was hardly any, any information on it. She did not have a moniker at that time. We are the ones who named her Finley Creek Jane Doe. And like Jason said, I texted my family and I said, did you hear about this? Because we've lived here my entire life and my parents would have been in their 20s when this body was found. And so they kind of went, mm, well, I sort of remember hearing something like that. And my mom's actually the one, out, one who went out and found Jason's posts on web sleuths and crime watchers. He had dug up a bunch of newspaper archives about the story at the time. And so I was like, oh, well, I wonder if I could do something with this. So I just started looking around at other Facebook groups and things that people were doing online to gain attention. And then I happened to read Billy Jensen's book when it came out, Chase Darkness with me. And he talked about Facebook campaigns. I had no idea that was a thing at all, that you could target who sees these posts and things like that. And so I said to myself, all right, I think I can do this. And the anniversary date of August 27th of when this body was found was about to come up. So I just took the plunge and launched her um, Facebook page on August 27th of 2018. Okay. And then shortly after the Finley Creek Jane Doe task force, uh, I guess, name was created by Jason. Yeah. He's the one, he's the first person who reached out to me on the Facebook page. Yep. That's so, yep. Okay, so take us through that, Jason. Yeah. Okay, so um, like Mel, you know, I've been immersed in true crime content probably since college, and uh, I'm a student of criminal justice. I went to school at Florida Gateway College in criminal justice studies in 2010, 
And it was there that I had found my first case to research. It, and it was by accident, honestly. It was the Lake City John Doe case and here in my hometown of Lake City 2010. And um, yeah, and so I looked into it and ultimately the case was resolved thanks to some of the stuff that I used on web sleuths. Uh, and that was accumulation of interviewing uh, retired detectives and, you know, going over some of the old case, case paperwork that I was able to look at. And so as soon as that case was wrapping up, they had arrested somebody and he was awaiting trial. I was looking for another case to go into. And at first I was looking at Fly Creek Jane Doe. It was a case in Washington, but as I was doing a little bit of research on that, I had noticed the case was starting to come to a close as well. So I was like, well, hell, what do I do now? <laughs> and that was when a woman from, uh, from Websluice, uh, she had reached out to me and said, hey, look, there is a case in Union County, Oregon that you should take a look at. It's, uh, it happened somewhere near Finley Creek. I don't know where that is. So I did a little Google search and I couldn't find anything at all in relation to this case. Like I Google searched, I NamUs it. And there was some stuff in NamUs, like the basics, like they had thought she was pregnant and they had provided the clothing description that Mel had provided to us just now. And I was like, well, how, okay, let's see. So in my previous research, I used to go to the college library and look into newspaper articles by using the microfish slides. And so I did that and I collected numerous uh, articles in relation to the Fenley Creek case, which actually helped build the story of the Fenley Creek Jane Doe. And during that time, I also reached out to Dr. Nikki Vance, who is the uh, forensic anthropologist for the Oregon State Medical Examiner's Office. And uh, she felt like she could help, but she couldn't do too much because it was an open case. But she did confirm with me that they do believe that Fenley Creek was, uh, Jane Doe was strangled because in the newspaper articles, it alluded to a cord, like a coaxial cord that was also found in the grave. And so they do believe that was the murder weapon in this case, or at least they did then. So, um, Anyways, I started putting more information out there on crimewatchers.net, and then I, by accident, again, uh, I located Mel's Facebook page that she had put together the, about the Finley Creek Jane Doe, and I'm like, interesting. So I reached out, and I offered my assistance in this case because I was like, you know, I have all the information, and I've also got great resources if you want to put our resources together. So literally, I think, what was it, Mel? Probably like a month later, we already had like four or five people in this chat mm -hmm. room. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, yep. yeah. So, um, and so, and we had some great people um, and uh, they're all still with us. And so we just put our resources together and that's how the task force formed. And then Mel and I started a letter campaign to pretty much every single state agency organization out there that may have the police reports. And lo and behold, we finally found it after you're going through numerous case report numbers. Mm -hmm. And I did not expect this. And I don't think Mel expected this either. But along with our file came 
photographs of the human remains that were found mm -hmm. at Finley Creek. Yeah. And it was then that I was like, I know a guy who could give her a face. And so I reached out to my good buddy, Anthony Redgrave with Redgrave Research Forensic Services out of Massachusetts. He had previously helped me with a John Doe case in Florida, where we were able to revise that John Doe's artwork. And he said that it was going to take a lot of work for this one, but probably about two months later, like in the middle of the night, yep. she, she finally had a face after 42 years. Yep. It was amazing. This is incredible. What a, uh, what an incredible series of events that came together to make that happen. Suzanne, when did, when did all of this kind of come, come to you and, and how did you come to terms with the fact that these people are, are putting so much work in? In June of 2021, which was last summer, I came across a unidentified image and I swore it was me initially. Like, you know, I see the image, I still see it today. And I'm like, I swear Anthony drew me. It was like 11 o'clock at night. I pull myself right out of bed. I see this picture and I'm like, why would someone draw me as an unidentified? I click on the details and start reading about it. And they are describing my mother, including her clothing, her height, her weight, her hair color. It's, it's my mom. And he drew a photo of me. So I'm like, obviously there's been a mistake. We were told this woman in Pendleton was not my mother, but how can a forensic artist take her skull and create this image that obviously so closely resembles my face and I not realizing I've never been told my entire life I look like my mother. Not once have I ever been told, oh, you look so much like your mom. I pull up pictures side by side of me and Patty and I'm like, well, no wonder it looks like me, it's her. So I immediately reach out to Mel saying, my mom was ruled out. I know she was ruled out because I have this little tiny handwritten note saying the x-rays do not match the body found out of Legrand. So I know that she was presented, but Mel can't find her in that, you know, giant 50 page homicide file that she has. <laughs> it's like, I have letters that are longer than that homicide file that she has, but there's no mention of Patty Otto in that entire 50 pages. Okay, so you were you were on Facebook and you saw the a picture that looked like you and Mel. That was from the campaigns that that you launched, uh, sort of geo identifying the area. It was the forensic art that Anthony was able to draw. He, we were able to release that forensic art on May fifth of twenty twenty, which happened to be my birthday. It was one of the best birthday gifts I ever had. So it was out there for roughly a year before Suzanne was able to see it. And then when she did, it, it, it did the exact job that it's supposed to do. Anthony has always told us that families carry traits across generations. And so that's what he was trying to capture. That's why it's black and white. He doesn't put specific skin tone, hair color, things like that, because he wants people to be able to just see a trait and just kind of picture, okay, I'm seeing that person as a blonde or I'm seeing that person with, you know, light brown hair and not, not put those things into people's minds, you know, from the outset, just make it as neutral as possible, but with these features. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what happened. Suzanne saw somebody that looked like herself and then just went from there. So it, the forensic art did exactly what it was supposed to do. 
Okay, and Suzanne, you were you were on Facebook just scrolling like normal through your timeline? <laughs> like normal. Um, because <laughs> I have a missing mother and um, uh, for other reasons I'm on Facebook, but I was on the Northwest, um, it's a Northwest missing per- persons page. It's the Pacific Northwest. And she had shared the Finley Creek image. That's where I got it. So I then went from that image back to the Finley Creek to find out who posted this and why are they drawing pictures of me and my mother? And, you know, who is this? And that's how I was able to connect with Mel. I also reached out that same night to Anthony to ask him, has a child ever reached out and said, you drew my mother? It's obviously me you've drawn, but you've drawn my mother. And he said, no, but that's the whole purpose of forensic art is it's supposed to have that familial, like there's something familiar here. And if you've seen the image, you will, it's not me grasping at straws. He's, he's very clearly drawing from a 2D image of a autopsy photo. He does not have the skull in his hand, so he doesn't have the measurements. He's doing the best he can with what he has. And he's drawn my mother. We also have, uh, Mel shared the photos, the autopsy photos with me, and I've taken the skull that Anthony used to create the forensic drawing and put my mom's picture in that skull to see if it will, you know, match. And her face lines up perfectly with the skull. So, you know, can you do that with any face? No, you can't. We all have different measurements between our eyes, between our nose, between our mouth. There's everybody has a unique facial pattern. So it's not just this image that I'm saying, oh, it's the clothes and it's the image. There's so many other details that are pointing to that it's my mom. Also in my investigation, when I start looking at Mel's documentation and Jason's um, you know, news articles, it shows where the body was found in 1978 by two hunters. And it says Ron Swagger and Lee Parr. And this is while I'm in bed with my husband. And I turn to my husband and say, Lee Parr, it's, it's his grandfather. Did your grandfather ever mention finding a body in 1978? My husband's very skeptical and he's like, okay, now you're talking crazy because it's not like my family went out and found a body and we just forgot to tell you and it happens to be your mom, right? It's, that's impossible. And I'm like, so did, did Lee ever mention it? Cause Lee passed away in 2009. He says, no. So I call his father and that's the following day. Cause his dad works at the prison. I call his dad to ask if his dad knew anything about Lee finding this body. And my father-in-law says, how do you know about that? I've never told you about that. So my father-in-law was there as a child and we're like, wait a minute, why does the police report say two adults found the body when now there's children? And he's telling me there was another child. There was a 14 year old that was there. And I'm like, this police report clearly states two adults found the body. And there's literally three families there when this body was found. Wives, yeah. children. Yeah, know. and they mentioned none of them. Okay, so there's some inconsistencies right off the bat in the police report. I'm curious. So you were told that this Jane Doe was ruled out? Correct. In my mother's police report, there is that handwritten note that says the x-rays do not match the body found out of Legrand. That's the only documentation of it. Mm-hmm. Doesn't say why or how. Right. No proof really provided. Just said it doesn't match. Yeah, it doesn't match. So, you know, no follow-up was done after that because they were told it doesn't match. And pretty much 
after that time, the detective was going into um, another division in the police department, and that case sat cold since 1978. Nobody's really ever touched this file until now when we're trying to dig into it to say, uh, you had your body in 1978. Clearly, Oregon has made a mistake, and Lewiston never followed back up to say, so she matches height, weight, skin color, time of death, cause of death, clothing, and you're telling me what about the teeth don't match? Why didn't they get the details to say what teeth don't match? What about, the, did this person have braces and this one doesn't? I mean, something very clear, but so we had to dig in a little bit deeper to find out those details. And how did that digging happen? What did you, where did you start? Um, and by the way, I'm still getting over the wild coincidence, maybe not a coincidence, <laughs> but the wildness of your father-in-law finding the body. That's in yep yeah that was a wild day for us too lance we were like there was a lot of like swearing back and forth like no way this can't be nope no -uh. this was one day after suzanne and i started talking to each other one day and she messages me and says i think my father-in-law found that jane doe and i was like yeah uh, right uh, yeah you're like yeah uh, right nope nope <laughs> but yeah he he has since taken us to the site and the first time I ever spoke to him, he described what it looked like. I had the photos. I knew what it looked like. And he was telling me what it looked like to the letter. And so I'm like, yep, that was him. He found it. All right. And so, yeah, it's, it's crazy. Well, it's also interesting that then months later, it's not till December that Mel and I are working this case. And this is when my sister leads me to this other police report that was hidden in her mail file. And I find this Lewiston police report from September 1st of 1978. And it clearly shows that when the detective found out that Jane Doe was wearing red pants and a white blouse, he flies my grandparents to Pendleton to go look at this cloth at the clothing. But what's happened is the reason he's on this case is he had gotten the notification of another Jane Doe that had been found in Portland. And that's the Jane Doe he was working on. So when he gets the notification of the clothing, he's on the, under the assumption this is the same Jane Doe, that he's already sent the medical records, the dental records. He's already been communicating with Multnomah on. And this the APB had came out August 10th. This is happening August 31st, he gets the call. Oh my God, red pants, white shirt. He's like, I'm already on it. I've already sent the records. If it's red pants and white blouse, we're going to go, we're going to look at them. So he flies my grandparents to Pendleton. They look at the clothing and my grandparents are like, yeah, she was wearing red pants and a white blouse, but these boots, my mom would never be caught dead in something like this. These look like men's ankle high leather work boots. And my mom's this classy little high dressing, you know, has her hair done weekly kind of girl, not a girl that's going to wear those shoes. Those shoes. <laughs> so my, my grandparents were like, those shoes, I don't recognize that. And I don't recognize there were other things in the grave, like zippers and little pieces of cloth and other things that had deteriorated that they didn't recognize. But the, the detective being the good detective he is says everything matches hands them the copy of her dental x-ray and says, here's her dental records. I want a comparison. What my theory is, is what happened. The letter was asking for the comparison to the first Jane Doe. So when that medical examiner got the letter and had the x-ray, he has a request saying, look at the first Jane Doe. 
but being told to look at the second Jane Doe, he either didn't do one or he did the other or he mixed them up because what he explains is this skull can't be patiato because this skull has unerupted wisdom tooth and extensive dental work. You can't see any of that in the autopsy photos. There are no unerupted wisdom teeth and there is not extensive dental work. But there is on the first Jane Doe. Right. Okay. So you're saying that he um, mixed up the Jane Doe's. That's my theory. And that's been my theory the whole time is that he just mixed these two up. It's clear that he has them mixed up. I don't think it was any kind of police cover up or intentionally trying to not give me answers or hide this. It's just human error. Where is the Jane Doe now? The Finley Creek Jane Doe? Yes. She was cremated. Yep, she was cremated in 1990, so roughly 12 years. Uh, the case had just been sitting. They didn't get anywhere on it. And they had done a handful of comparisons. None of them turned out to be her. And in 1990, the district attorney who was in office at the time just decided to close the case and ordered the state police to destroy all the evidence. And that included the clothing, the boots, the wire, and the body and the fetus. So the remains were sent, ironically, to Walla Walla, Washington. We did not have a crematorium in town at the time. So the remains were sent to Walla Walla. I have the documentation where they were sent over there and ordered to be cremated. And that's where the paper trail stops. There's no paper trail indicating those remains ever came back or what happened to them after that. And when you say the uh, wire was destroyed too, are you talking about the, the coaxial? The cable? coax, yep. Any evidence, anything that was found in there physical items wise, they just ordered it destroyed. Why was the case closed? Well, that's a great question. And we have had a number of people reach out to that former DA to ask that very question. Haven't gotten a response. Um, my theory is within a few years, he became a judge and was a judge for 20 years here. So I think he wanted to do a little bit of housekeeping before he ran for a judgeship. And he, he did no work on that case, none. It was the DA prior to him who handled it. And so that's just my feeling is he wanted to clear, clear his books off a little bit before he ran for judge. The record states that due to the age of the case and that no identification was ever made, it was determined to close the case. So literally 12 year old case, they decide mm -hmm. that's, you know, it was so old, 12 years, let's just close it. With no documentation. Yeah, let's just close it and destroy everything. Yeah, and that wouldn't that wouldn't sit well with anyone in the modern age of law enforcement because now because of DNA collection and stuff like that, the game has changed in these kind of cases. But um, I've talked to a lot of friends of mine who have worked in sheriff's departments and police departments, and they said regardless of whether a case is closed or not, we still keep the file for 99 years. So that, and that's very interesting too, because as I looked into the file as well, yeah, like Mel said, this DA that worked the case, well, the, this DA that ordered the evidence destroyed, he did absolutely no work on it. Because if I remember right in our file, the last 
time the case was worked on was like 1987 and then straightforward destroys everything in 1990 without giving it a second glance before you know proceeding because 1990 compared to 1978 technology has somewhat changed there could have been more work done in 1990 to preserve DNA evidence. I mean, it was still, you know, being worked on. So what it just bought back, just bought, <laughs> I'm stuttering here. It, it just, it, it just baffles me that this DA would do something like this, especially when technology was starting to change. It, it's just baffling to me. By then, DNA cases had started setting precedent in court, so it's it's very surprising to me. And you would imagine that somebody in that position would, in a way, have their, what's the saying, ear to the grindstone or ear to the road. You know, like they would know that these new developments are happening directly in relation to what they do. And they're sort of identifying that they're on the cusp of this this new technology. So why not even keep like a piece of it? I mean, we, we talk about this all the time. Okay. never mind. Go on, Jason. Oh, well, well, what, what I was going to say is you have to remember about 1986 was when DNA started gaining significance in cold cases and, and criminal investigations. So it, it's kind of just like forensic genetic genealogy. It's taking a while to catch up with the science and also being able to say, Hey, look, I think we got something here. With in 1986, you know, they were still skeptical, excuse me, they were still skeptical of DNA and they were still working on blood card evidence and stuff like that, fingerprints. But as the years, you know, go on, yes, then DNA became something pretty significant. I don't think it was until about maybe 95, 96 when DNA started becoming a regular inclusion in law enforcement investigations. So I understand to some degree why they didn't preserve it, but at the same time, it's like you destroyed a human body without first looking at the case again. You didn't even give it a second thought. Like that's not how things should be done. And I hope to God, you know, there are there are a few cases similar to that, but I do hope that elsewhere in the country they didn't do that. But, you know, it is what it is, unfortunately. Well, and even elsewhere in the state, we know they didn't do that because Dr. Vance did a sweep. She gathered up all of the unidentified across the state. These old cold cases, she gathered them up physically. She has them. And there were other counties in this state who kept those remains for longer. The cases were older, but this county didn't. And one one case I'd like to note on that, too, there was a case in Josephine County, Oregon. Uh, a girl was found in 1971. That's seven years before Fenley Creek Jane Doe was discovered. Her bones were still intact when Dr. Vance recovered them, and they were not even in a grave. Like the bones were sitting in an evidence locker in Josephine County when they when they sent them to Clackamas for preservation. So it's like, you can't give me that excuse of, oh, well, the case is cold. We didn't have no movement. We needed a space in the locker room. Don't give me that. You know, a lot of other counties in Oregon was preserving evidence way before technology advanced. And look at it now. It was a murder. 
Yeah, yeah. six nineteen sixty three Ashland baby doe. They just solved that case, the aforementioned case in Josephine County. Thanks to the preservation of the evidence, she has been identified as Annie Lehman. So, let so this is the testament to why you should never destroy evidence in a cold case, no matter how old it is. Yeah, make a spot on a shelf. You need to keep it. You know, we, we cover a lot of cases on this show, and I feel like th this case is is very unique in a, for a lot of reasons. Um, but one of them is because you believe you've you've matched the missing person to the Jane Doe, and that is very unique um, on these airwaves. Um, I'm so sorry that they, you know, uh, cremated um, the, the Finley Creek Jane Doe's body. Where are you going to go from here to try to, um, I guess, make a conclusive match? Well, because my father-in-law knows where the grave was located at, um, because we have that location, we were able to bring cadaver dogs out to the site and actually do, you know, a, a sweep of the area. And both times the dogs alerted that there are human remains. The last time the dog alerted that there's remains right here. Um, at that time, we notified Oregon State Police who said, well, it's a closed case. We got to figure out what to do. But after presenting our case, which, you know, the same information we just gave to you, they feel that we have enough information to um, give some resources to this case. And they're actually going to come out there and meet us with the dogs and provide, you know, a forensic sweep of the area if there's any evidence there. Her arm and the hand on her other arm are missing. So animals had actually drug remains off. If we can get one finger bone that has DNA, then we can prove that this case is without a doubt my mother. Without the DNA, the other thing we're doing is testing this box of miscellaneous cremains, which is here in Walla Walla with me. Um, the first attempt was not successful, but you know, there's cases that it takes nine times to successfully extract DNA. So we're not going to give up. Um, we've also tried to go back to the Pendleton crime lab because what if those red pants are still there? What if those boots are still there? You know, what if the evidence really wasn't destroyed and they just haven't misplaced? I just keep hoping that somebody's going to come forward. Somebody's going to dig into an evidence locker that wasn't looked at. And oh, here it is. Here's the missing red pants. Here's the, why is there no documentation that it was actually destroyed? You know, there's an order saying to do it, but where's the evidence log saying, I took this out. I cremate, I burned it. I threw it in the trash, whatever. They have to say what they're doing with this evidence. They can't just make it disappear. So where, where is that evidence? Well, if anyone's going to find it, I feel like it's going to be one of the three people that are on the Zoom call. <laughs> you you had said earlier that your sister, in some ways, is directing and, and pointing you in certain directions uh, from the other side. And uh, Mel and Jason were both nodding pretty enthusiastically about that. What are these uh, examples? It's, it looks like Jason is chomping at the bit to tell us what 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 happened. Why? What is? What are these examples? Well, my sister died in 2006, and obviously she doesn't talk to me on a regular basis or anything like that because I'm not, you know, hearing voices. But in December of this last year, I was in a meeting and I kept hearing her saying that I needed to update her E-Trade account address. And I don't even know what E-Trade is. So I'm like, why am I having this thought? And I would just disregard it. And I was, I'm trying to run my meeting and I keep hearing her like, you need to update the address now. E-Trade address now, you have to do it now. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm losing my damn mind. Why do I, I don't hear her outside of my head. It's just more like 
a thought in my head that I keep having. So I pull open her mail file from 2006 and I find that stupid E-Trade account and it really has her old address on it. I never updated it. So I was like, oh, well, maybe this E-Trade, maybe she invested in something really cool, like, you know, the missing podcasts and it's super <laughs> worth a whole bunch of money. So I'm going to call this E-Trade and find out what it's all about. While I'm on the phone, I look at her mail file and there's a police report sitting on the top of her mail file. It's the one that we've been missing. It's the one that shows that my mom was presented on September 1st of 1978. It's the one showing that Tom Celine flew my grandparents out there. It's what Oregon's been denying this whole time that she was never presented because she's not in their file. So I get this report. She has her handwritten notes on it. She's literally saying, how do I know if they identified her or not? Should I call you know, Union County and find out if this woman was ever identified? She has her little notes written on there. Um, so we call, we're finding out whether Umatilla County had anything to do with this. What, this. what this report shows us is it was such a runaround that was given to each detective that it makes it really clear why this never got documented in the Oregon's chart. He calls Union County, tells him to go to Umatilla County. Umatilla County tells him to go to Oregon State Police. Oregon State Police tell him to go to the Pendleton Crime Lab. Pendleton Crime Lab tells him to show up and he's the one that shows him the evidence. Who documented that? Nobody, nobody, because it was too many people going through too many different loops. And so nobody on the Oregon side documented that here my mom is being presented as a perfect match. So when they get the dental record back saying it's not her, which we now know he looked at the wrong skull, he's holding the first skull, not the second skull. Nobody questioned it. Nobody questioned it. And nobody even thought to look at it again to say, are you sure it's not her? But my sister was questioning it. Natalie was questioning it. And you likely would never, like, had found that with, without going in for that E-Trade thing. It is a needle in a haystack to find that record. It was not in my police report because she had pulled it out and had it right by her phone where she was calling. And at the time she died, someone just put the mail file all together. And that police report was right there in her mail Holy from shit. 2006. Yes. She's definitely helping me from the other side. And then even just finding that photo, right? Just running across that photo at 11 o'clock at night, I'm awake scrolling through Facebook and I find this photo and I just can't help but think something is leading me to this page because it's been there for two years. How come I've never seen it before? I just want to believe that she's got the answers on the other side. And she was like, whoa, whoa, I was wrong. I was going the wrong direction. And here, you need to have this and you need to close this and you need to get answers. Well, that is remarkable. Yeah. And speaking of answers, I am sorry for how generic this question is going to sound. What will this do for you if you connect those remains to your mom, to you, and it is brought to uh, some sort of conclusion where they can tell you exactly what happened or the most likely scenario what what will that fill some sort of pit that you have if me moving from idaho to walla walla washington in 1999 was for this purpose it was to put these pieces together to put this puzzle together and finally have closure and to know my mother never left me 
right? I have grown up all those years thinking she abandoned me. Only when I'm an adult and have my own children am I realizing there's no way did she do that, but I don't have proof of it. The proof that we have is what I was told, the lies that I was told, and I want the proof. I want to prove this is my mother and prove she never walked out on us. She never abandoned us. Being a mother was her primary goal in life, and that was taken from her by someone who was never held accountable. So closure and just knowing the truth and having that to be able to live the rest of my life, knowing my mom's been here with me since 1999. She's just sitting miles away from me right here, waiting for us to get this figured out. Well, that is just wild. You have got to keep us updated um, every step of the way here. I need to know um, where this goes. Uh, I am uh, personally invested at this point. Um, this is uh, just a uh, a remarkable story, and I feel feel like I would love to help in, in any way we possibly can. Um, wh- what can we do? Is there is there any call to action, anything uh, that you would like to tell our listeners uh, that they can do? The one thing that we can get to help is I have a Lewiston dentist right now who has experience with forensic dentistry, and he's trying to get a couple of different opinions together to present to Oregon to say, this is clearly Patty Otto's teeth but he doesn't want it to be just one person. So if there are forensic odontologists that would look at these images and not look at the false paper written record, look at the teeth, that would be helpful for us because I don't have DNA and I can't guarantee that we're going to be able to find that finger in a forest. I can't. Exactly. Yep. Um, The other thing is sharing the story because we know there are some witnesses out there who are not talking. So we want to put public pressure on folks in Lewiston, over here in Oregon, before everybody's gone. There have been a lot of people who have passed away in regards to this case. That's officials, that's witnesses, and we need that public pressure to be on. Another thing I would like to add is we are, regardless of how it turns out, taking responsibility for these Walla Walla cremains and finding out who they are. We're fairly certain we know who they are, but it's going to take a Herculean effort to extract DNA if it's possible. It might take a number of passes, like Suzanne said. And because there are several different jurisdictions involved, three different states, we are paying for that. We're fundraising and paying for that. So we do have um, donations that you can send in. We've, uh, what are our cash app, right? Cash app, um, what's it, Venmo. So we can provide information about that. And we, because we don't want money to be a barrier for each step of this DNA processing that's going to happen. We absolutely do not want that to be a barrier. So that's, that can be helpful too. Absolutely. And thank you for being willing to share our stories and to just this get is it huge. out there. It's huge. Absolutely. Thank you so much for uh, for coming on and uh, you know speaking about about this case and all the twists and turns and uh, you know emotional um, heartache that uh, that I know you've uh, suffered. Um, well, if if we can do any part to help, we uh, we really would love to. So um, please keep us updated. Yeah, and we will um, share this as far as far as we can. And uh, before we go to uh, what I'd like to do, too, is to encourage 
your listeners, uh, some of them might be, you know, your typical armchair detective or whatever, citizen sleuth. And I would encourage them that, you know, if you have a so-called pet case, a case that you've been following closely, use our blueprint to start something in that regard, because it might be a case that may be pretty darn old, maybe just a little jostling with the uh, law enforcement agency in your area might help. And that's pretty much what Mel and I did. I mean, this case literally had no chance until we stepped, stepped forward, I think. It's a good uh, call to action right there because we do have listeners who want to apply something to uh, any disappearance story that they hear. Uh, And I think this one is at the top of the list as far as like where it could go. I mean, you're, you're so close. It just feels like it's so close and a little push is going to be huge. Absolutely. And I mean, if anyone ever needs help putting something together out there, they know where to find me. <laughs> yep, just shoot us a message for sure. 